today and seize the day. And both tires were pinched. And the next day when I got in, I noticed that there was a huge dent on the back side of the far end of the beach with a keyless jeep that was within range of the rising tide we make it about 100 meters and we hear this massive screeching noise coming from our boat area and then i just hear i feel the boat just kind of like rock towards towards the big sailboat (laughs) and i hear this like metallic shuffling (laughs) and a (laughs) kerplunk so when i was about two miles away from our field site at 4.50 a.m. I was supposed to be there at 5 a.m. My car stopped in the middle of a turning lane in the middle of the road, my car stopped. The head backed up and it flooded my cabin. I picked the wrong path to go into our site and ended up walking like a half a kilometer in this very thick, like thigh high mud. Hey listeners, welcome to Seize the Day. It's Lisa Campbell here today with Hoffa Lobo. Our team at Seize the Day recently asked members of our Marine Lab community to share their favorite stories of their fieldwork fails and follies. Here at Seize the Day, we like to talk about research, but also about researchers as people, their humanness, and what experience is more human than failure. When listening to the responses, we quickly identified a common theme. In spite of the diverse types of research done at the lab, ranging across engineering, natural sciences, and social science, Those introductory clips you heard point to that theme. Transportation. To and from field sites, within field sites, in cars, and on boats. The way we get around features prominently in the stories people were willing to share. But there's more. Much, much more. Let's get started. Our first story is from Jillian Weasley, a PhD candidate at the lab studying hormones in pilot whales. Just a heads up, Jillian will talk about collecting blubber samples from whales. Blubber biopsies are commonly taken by shooting a small dart into the side of the whale using a crossbow. This is an established research technique that causes minimal disturbance to the animal and details of the permit to conduct the research are included in our website. Here's Jillian. So a few years ago, I was doing some field work with a team based on a vessel called the Song of the Whale, which is this really beautiful 72 foot, I think, sailboat. It's rigged up to be really quiet for acoustics work. So we were going really, really far offshore to survey all these different marine mammals, like edge of the exclusive economic zone, 200 nautical miles offshore. So it's far, you're out there. So there's no coming back if you forgot something, if you have to lose something. And this was at a point in my PhD where I had been training to collect my own blubber biopsies, which are these little tissue samples that we get from the animals and then we can take them back to the lab and do stuff with hormones or genetics, stabilized jokes, the type of stuff that I'm doing in my PhD. So I felt like I was the person on the boat that could actually, <laughs> you know, this was where I could contribute to the effort was helping handle these biopsies. And so we seen these animals and people had kind of taken turns going out and collecting biopsies or putting tags on. And we came up on a group of multiple sperm whales and they're the coolest animals ever, but lots of calves like blowing bubbles and, you know, leaping out of the water. And it was incredible. And I'm dying to go out on the little boat to do these biopsy samples. So we started loading the boat and I'm waiting and hoping that it's going to be my turn. <laughs> to go on the boat. 
And finally, my advisor says, okay, Jillian, you want to come on? I'm like, yes. <laughs> yes, I'm going out. I'm going to help collect these biopsies. It's, it's a small boat. There's only room for three people and really only room for two people. So we're loading up this tiny boat off the side of this massive sailboat. And we're taking like one piece of equipment down at a time, getting us on board. You know, the boat's rocking back and forth. The weather wasn't horrible, but... It was moving. <laughs> so, you know, we're like crawling down slowly, carefully. People are handing us stuff. So excited, nervous, shaking. And um, someone hands me the crossbow and I'm like, yes, we're going to we're gonna get samples from these incredible animals. And I like put the crossbow and then someone hands me something else, you know, camera and I load it in the boat and the iPad and load it in the boat. And, and we're waiting, we're looking up for the next thing and someone's about to come down. And then I just hear, feel the boat just kind of like rock towards, towards the big sailboat. <laughs> and I hear this like metallic shuffling <laughs> and a kerplunk. <laughs> and I realize in that moment that the crossbow, which I had just set on the boat in a very precarious situation had gone overboard and was now sinking down to the bottom of the ocean, which is like, you know, in this spot, maybe 3,000 meters down. This thing is not coming back. <laughs> and these animals are here. We are like frantically <laughs> trying to go get these samples. And this crossbow is gone. <laughs> and my heart dropped, you know, because I'm early career. This is my opportunity to help. And I have royally messed this up. Like Jillian, many marine scientists work on boats. And boat work is subject to weather. Working on boats also means sometimes working in cramped quarters. And these two features of boat work can combine in interesting ways. In this next story, Professor Brian Silliman describes one of his first boat-based research experiences on an expedition to the Bahamas. The combination of weather and close quarters may help explain why he now focuses on coastal ecosystems that don't necessarily require use of boats. Uh, we had a grand adventure going over to the Bahamas. We got on the boat, the RV Bellows. It was a University of Florida boat, and it has a belly of a bottom. So it really doesn't move well in the water. And we went from Fort Lauderdale over to the Bahamas. And once we hit the Gulf Stream, boy, that boat started rocking. And I got really, really seasick. And that stayed with me. I couldn't sleep in uh, my bunk. I had to sleep outside. And that stayed with me for almost a day over till we got there and I really couldn't do anything to plan for this research. Then as soon as we got there, uh, the weather picked up and none of us could go out offshore. So we were stuck on the boat. And uh, the next thing that happened was that uh, the head backed up and it flooded my cabin. And so again, I couldn't sleep inside and had to sleep out on the deck for four or five days. Still couldn't get out to the, to the reef. Boats aren't just challenging on the water. Sometimes the challenge is getting them to the water. Non-boat people may not be familiar with the term trailering. Here's Dana Greco on the skill of trailering necessary for many marine scientists. A fieldwork mishap that I had working in a restored marine lagoon. And I'm not going to tell you where that mishap happened because I want to protect some form of integrity as this is a story I don't really share. But anyway, we had been sampling, benthic sampling on this restored marine lagoon um, 
doing field work as much as possible. Truly, any day that weather was great, we would go. And I was always the one who was trailering the boat. We had a big truck. I would trailer the boat. I was feeling pretty confident at this point in the summer. And I had been doing it a lot. And so one day my boss asked me if I could trailer a different boat with some really expensive equipment on it to a site um, where they were doing deeper benthic sampling. And I said, sure. And I took it down there. I had to make some tight turns getting out of the parking lot, but then the drive was a breeze after that. And I brought the truck back up to our field site. After I dropped the boat off with folks there and I went home. And the next day when I got in, I noticed that there was a huge dent on the back side of that truck on the, just kind of around where the wheel is. So I went and checked in with my boss and I said, you know, there's a huge dent on this truck. And we were trying to figure out how it happened, you know, with somebody else in the parking lot moving something at night and they didn't notice that they put a dent in the truck. How could something have really hit it at that angle? So as we're talking about this, I am picturing myself trailering the boat the day before with all the heavy equipment on it. And I'm picturing myself making the tight turns in the parking lot and I realized to my horror that I think it was actually me who dented the truck with the boat on the trailer when it was at a 90 degree angle, actually digging in on the corner of the boat to the side of the truck to make that dent. So in that moment, I had to be the one to tell my boss that actually, I think that I made the dent the day before. And um, it was a huge dent. I mean, we were talking about potentially not driving the boat. It was not a small dent. So I thought that, you know, I was going to lose my job, forget marine science. This career path was over for me. Stephanie Valdez, another PhD student at the lab, has also been building her trailering skills. I'm an ecologist that focuses on nearshore coastal vegetative habitats like marshes and seagrasses. So recently, as I've been progressing through my PhD, I've been working on our boat more because some of my sites are remote. And recently, we had some trailer troubles that thankfully are now pretty funny to look back on. So the main story is we were out doing some field work, me and another colleague, and we ended up finishing our field work, getting the boat onto the trailer, and we started to head home for an early lunch. We were excited that we were going to make it back and it was going to be great. Like we had gotten everything we'd done, we had needed to get done. We make it about a hundred meters and we hear this massive screeching noise coming from our boat area. And we stop, we look around, we don't see anything immediately wrong with the boat or the trailer. So we keep going. We make it probably another hundred meters to the stop sign and we just can't shake this feeling that something is wrong. So we take another look around and my colleague points out that the axle on our tire, our boat trailer just doesn't look quite right. So we call up our marine ops person and we're like, hey, this axle doesn't look quite right sitting in this tire. Turns out we were right. So he gets a flatbed tow truck to come out and take a look at the, the boat and the trailer. And mind you, we're about 45 minutes away from our marine lab, our home base. And we find that the truck is busy. The truck that was coming to get us was busy and it's gonna take them about, oh, two hours to come and get us. There goes our lunch. So the wait wasn't bad. We hung out, we talked, we ate some of the snacks that we thankfully had. And then finally this flatbed truck shows up and he starts 
pulling the boat and the trailer all as one unit onto this flatbed truck. And we soon realize that this truck might not be big enough to fit the trailer and the boat. The person working the truck takes several angles at it, is starting to pull up the truck. There's many scary moments where we're like, this is just not gonna work, like there's no way. And at one point in time, I'm the one that's operating the lift of this manual flatbed truck with my colleague on the boat and she is being lifted into the air about 20 feet. Both of us are like freaking out like this is not, I should not be working this heavy equipment and she should not be on this boat right now. In the end, the boat does end up fitting with the trailer and in this whole process, the tire that we were worried about ends up falling off the boat. It was not attached whatsoever. The axle was just sitting in the tire and it was bound to fall off any minute if we kept driving. So thankfully we did stop and we did fix this situation, but it has led to a comical story. And silver lining, we were able to leave that day with just the truck and didn't have to clean the boat for several days. Trailers are not the only challenging land-based vehicles. And sometimes the challenge is really a case of operator error. Our next story is from Matthew Godfrey, a junk professor at the Marine Lab and wildlife biologist with the state of North Carolina. After I finished grad school, I was working at the National Sea Turtle Project in Brazil. One of my responsibilities there included the daily morning patrol of an adjacent beach to identify and mark new sea turtle nests. At the height of the season, when many nests were laid in a single night, the morning patrol could take a while. So as a reward for those long mornings, at the far end of the beach when we finished patrol, we would jump into the ocean and wash off the sand and sweat before returning to the base. One day, and I don't know why, I decided to take the key out of the ignition of the patrol jeep and put it into my pocket before jumping in the water. Of course, the key fell out in the waves. As a result, we were stuck at the far end of the beach with a keyless jeep that was within range of the rising tide, which we thought was going to happen in about six hours. Also, it was a Saturday, so I knew the project office would close at noon and would not reopen until Monday. With rising panic at the thought of losing the jeep to the tide, I sprinted 10 kilometers back to the base, burst into the office crying, barely breathing, and tried to explain calmly what happened. After, there was silence as the project coordinator stared hard at me for what seemed like an eternity, slowly shaking her head, before she picked up the phone and managed to find someone to go out and get the Jeep off the beach. Afterwards, there was never any official discussion or admonishment about how I lost the key, but it wasn't necessary. That's because the Jeep remained keyless. It had a simple toggle switch installed to make it start. And every time someone used that hot wire toggle switch to start up the Jeep, they simply stared at me wordlessly, slowly shaking their head. Operator error is also familiar to Professor Javier Baserto. In this next story about a vehicle mishap, you'll hear Javier refer to Hillary. Hillary is Dr. Hillary Smith, but at the time, she was one of Javier's graduate students. They were invited to a meeting of the World Forum of Small-Scale Fishers and Harvesters, and they attended in part to help Hillary develop her dissertation research. As you listen to Javier's story, try to imagine it from Hillary's perspective on her first fieldwork outing with her advisor. In 2017, we made kind of a last-minute trip 
to Ecuador. And so the meeting was in Salinas, Ecuador, uh, about two hours away from the capital where we flew in. We went to the meeting. It was interesting. People from all over the world or feature leaders from all over the world. And the way back, we we needed to drive back two hours in this rental car and take our plane. And we didn't have a lot of time to spare. So we left Salinas and started driving. And, you know, we were going to be at the airport just until the right amount of time. And we were navigating, you know, through the capital. I've never been there. And so we're using Google Maps. And as we are, I don't know, three miles, two miles from the airport, I inadvertently step onto a rail that separates the bus lane from car lane. It, it was a strange uh, intersection. And both tires were pinched. Both tires of this rental car on the left side were flat. And I was like, we're going to miss our flight. We're, we're, we're stuck. We're going to miss our flight. And we couldn't miss our flight. We were, you know, needed to get a lot of things done in the way back. So we looked and like, actually, we're just one mile from the airport. So I decided, okay, get in and, or, or we decided to drive like that. And slowly we made our way to the airport. And I will never forget the faces of the taxi drivers that are just, you know, relaxed leaning against their cars at the entrance of the airport when you, they saw this rental car come in with two flat tires as we were rolling in, got off with our stuff, go and talk to the rental car guys, explain the situation and, you know, give the car and go and get our flight, which we didn't miss. While most of the stories of fieldwork follies involve getting to and from the field, a couple involve challenges with research. First, let's hear from Brian Silliman again, this time on transferring field experiments run successfully in one location to another one. I went to, uh, to get my PhD at Brown, and we were going to test the generality of the importance of snail grazing and salt marshes that I found in Virginia and Georgia marshes. And my advisor, Mark Burton, said, you arrange for everything, take care of the housing and stuff like this, because you know what you're doing, get the equipment, the caging and stuff, and here's um, here's ten thousand dollars. That's all I have to do it. So I was this was fantastic. I bought everything. Um, everything was arranged, and we flew down there. And all the caging material, about eight thousand dollars worth of caging material, had shown up on the island ahead of time. So we're ready to go. And I estimated based on the replication that we would need two weeks of work: one week making cages, one week deploying. So he took off the time, got somebody to take care of the teaching for him. The two of us were going to do this. We get down there and the professors walk us through the marsh and I'm getting a little nervous. There's lots of snails, but they're really, really small. And I hid some of those snails in my pocket. And then when the three of us went back to the Marine Station at the University of Georgia on Sapelo Island, sheepishly stole over to the area where the, the cages were and I pushed that snail against the cage and went right through the mesh. And that was the biggest snail I could find. So. Then over dinner, I quietly admitted, I said, I think we have uh, caging material that won't work. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, I think it's just too big for all the snails. And uh, his response was not to talk to me. <laughs> so my advisor didn't want to talk about it. I knew I had to fix it. 
So I spent the next uh, two weeks trying to find replacements, and the only uh, answer was that it would take a month for this to come down to this isolated area in Georgia and for us to pick up our tasks there. So he had to leave in the meantime, and then we spent the rest of the time. I stayed down there instead of two weeks, I stayed down there three months. For social scientists who study people, communities, or institutions in specific geographic locales, fieldwork presents different challenges, especially those related to interacting with people, both in and outside of formal research contexts. The next story is my own, taken from my PhD fieldwork. But before we start, let me just say that for any social scientist listening, can I just say that Hafa and I are aware that our very understanding of fieldwork and how the field is defined has shifted dramatically in the social sciences? What and where is the field anyway? Okay, that's a topic for another podcast, but we just needed to say it out loud. We know. Okay, here's me. During my PhD research, I was living in rural Costa Rica studying a community-based wildlife management program. And I was really lucky to have my sister working with me as a field assistant and a translator. She was fluent in Spanish, and my language skills at the beginning of the field work were mediocre at best. So very early on, we were invited to a community meeting, and these meetings are where the work of community management is debated and negotiated. So we were super excited. The meeting was attended by more than 100 people, and it was really fast-paced and a bit raucous. People talked over each other, lots of back-and-forth interactions and jokes. Lots and lots of jokes. So basically a nightmare for someone who is not fluent in the language. But I listened really carefully, and I was feeling pretty pleased with myself because I found myself picking up on key ideas and major themes, and I knew that I had my sister to help me unpack the things that I had missed. At the end of the meeting, someone asked me what I had thought. I was feeling pretty confident, and I wanted to engage, so I replied that while I had found it all very interesting, I had one question. What? was the chicken of the village. Now, for those of you who don't speak Spanish, let me tell you that pollo, the word for chicken as in the food that you eat, sounds an awful lot like apoyo, meaning support. And in a community-based management program, it might make sense that people spoke of apoyo del pueblo, support of the village, and not pollo del pueblo, chicken of the village. Well, that gaffe stayed with me for a while, and people would shout at me from houses, from cars, as they walked past me in the street, Hey, Lisa, where's the chicken of the village? And later, just, where's the chicken? Misunderstanding, possibly intentional, is at the heart of Professor Marty Smith's story of failure. Marty also takes us to a different kind of field site, his classroom where he sometimes runs economic simulations and experiments with his students. My folly is about uh, being in the field in the classroom. I like to run classroom games and use simulations to demonstrate uh, a variety of concepts in economics, strategic interactions and performance of policy tools. Policies that might be ones that we use to regulate fisheries or policies that we use to regulate pollution. So I, about 20 years ago, when I was a new faculty member at Duke, I wanted to run a cap-and-trade simulation to demonstrate the benefits of using cap-and-trade 
to regulate pollution. And at the time, I was using actually effectively uh, individual clickers that students had uh, at their chairs in my large environmental economics classroom, uh, where I could ask them a, a true or false question or a multiple choice question, and they could click and see that their response was registered on the screen and all the data would automatically download. And I thought, oh, this is a perfect technology for actually running a cap and trade simulation. I could run what's called a Tautomon auction. And that's actually a rather simple way of running an auction where the auctioneer calls out a price and the individuals in the room uh, indicate whether they want to buy or sell at that price and how many units. And so I made it very simple. They could either buy or sell one, two, or three units, and they could use their clickers to indicate that. And so I told everyone, I, I distributed to everyone in advance what their marginal abatement costs would be. That means basically what would be the cost of reducing their pollution. And then I distributed permits to everyone. So they had a baseline level of permits. So I did all of this and calculated what the equilibrium was supposed to be in advance. And there I was in the classroom and I set it all up and I called out the first price knowing exactly which way the market was supposed to move. And lo and behold, the market moved in, the, in that direction. I had two, I called out a price that I knew was too low. And so I had too many buyers uh, at that low price. And so I needed to adjust the price upwards. That's what the auctioneer in these markets does. So I adjust the price upwards and I purposefully sort of overshot. And then I had too many sellers at the, at the much higher price and too few buyers. I said, okay, this is, this is going great. So then I thought, okay, now we're gonna start to refine down toward the price that I know is the correct equilibrium. So, price is now too high, right? So I call out a slightly lower price. And all of a sudden, I see, oh no. So the price has gone down. There's even more firms that are willing, willing to sell at the lower price that I just called out. And I thought, what on earth has just happened? So then I sort of, well, you know, who knows? Maybe some sort of anomaly here. I call out a, a lower price still, and this effect happens again. And then all of a sudden, I'm in a panic because this simulation is not working. We are not moving toward an equilibrium. And the point that I'm trying to make with this lecture is not gonna happen. So that starts to worry me. And I'm sitting there sweating in a panic, trying new things, trying out different prices and seeing how we're cycling around the equilibrium and going nowhere. And one of the student raises their hand and says, you know, some of us are not really playing the game. We're just trying to click first to get our recorded, our, our uh, individual units recorded on the screen first. And that's the game we're playing. <laughs> and so I thought, oh no. <laughs> One of the reasons we wanted to talk about fieldwork failures and follies is because we know the stories are funny, but also because everyone seems to have them. And yet, when you experience your first one, it can seem like you are totally alone. But you're not. Remember Jillian, despondent after sending a crossbow to the bottom of the ocean? Here's what happened next. And I can see in everyone's faces. <laughs> That everyone's hurting a little bit, and I'm obviously disappointed in myself. 
and later that night we're sitting around the dinner table and one of the senior scientists on the boat kind of looked at everyone and he goes, okay, everybody now, tell their worst field story. Tell Jillian the most expensive thing that you've broken or ruined or destroyed doing field work. So one by one, everyone on the boat, these scientists that I really respect, told me about these wildly expensive and irreplaceable things that they had messed up. It made me feel so much better because I think it's easy as an early career scientist to think of these one-off moments as being like career ending or my one shot, it's over, and think that you're the only one who's ever messed this up. But it was incredibly reassuring to hear people who have made it so far through their careers have similar experiences and honestly a lot of worse experiences than I had. Even when the logistics of field work are going right, I mean driving, trailering, flying, boating, the research might still go wrong. And that too is okay. Here's Brian Silliman. One thing I tell all of my graduate students when they first start off is that really, really good field ecologists have a failure rate that's at about 50%, and it starts off about 80%. So what that means is you're gonna have a lot of great stories to share about unsuccessful attempts at evaluating some idea and secondly, um, that you need to have some backup plans. I guess the point being is that um, now I go into any situation, like going on a travel course, telling the students that the first, second, or third thing you're gonna try is probably gonna fail. But the key is to think about backups, as well as understand that the people that have gone before you have experienced many failures, and it's important to talk about those to try to find your way around it and understand that it, it, it's, it's part of the game. And stories of fieldwork failures or follies often have happy endings. We're going to leave you with another story from Javier Basurto. One of the first times I taught my Mexico course in the Sonoran Desert, uh, we had a planned an outing to camp on Santa Rosa Estuary, which is at the beginning of the Seri or Concac territory is a really nice piece of, of desert, uh, beautiful mangrove forest. It has three different species of mangrove, great place for, for camping. And I was a little bit rusty on how to get there. And I know there's some, there's different numbers of roads to get there. And some of them are sand traps and some of them are passable. And I've got stuck in the sand so many times that I, I, you know, I, I have some idea of how to spot those roads that are pretty sandy. And it was, yeah, after the, you know, early afternoon and we started driving there and I realized there were many more road options that I initially considered. And I took one that looked like the right one. And I started to realize that it was very soft and we were already in it and when you're in it you better keep going forward because these are very narrow roads in terms of you know it's only a couple of tracks and so i realized that if i stop with a 15 passenger van it will be very hard to not get stuck and so i kept going thinking hopefully it will the road will end in a place where you know it's firm again which is usually the case when you get close to the water and then I will be able to turn or camp there and, and get out. But the road just kept getting worse and worse. And eventually 
we were stuck. And so we were in the middle of this beautiful desert and after a few tries, I realized it was not a good idea to keep trying because you just keep getting deeper into the sand. So we started hiking the desert to where we could have cell phone reception. I ended being this beautiful hike in the desert. And when I contacted my, my friend, the station manager, he said, you know, he could only come tomorrow to get us. So we decided, or I told the students to pull out the, the tents. We had everything in the van and we we're going to spend the night there. And it became a story of, of camping in the most unexpected place, but being one of the most beautiful camping uh, experiences I've had. Precisely because it was a new place. It was a place that I hadn't camped before. And being in the middle of the Sonoran Desert, we saw things that we don't see usually in my class because we were usually camping by the water. Turned out there were lots of swimming, um, hummingbirds and lots of cactus plants in flower. And once it gets dark, the flowers open and the smell of the flowers becomes intense. And, and it was just a beautiful, beautiful experience camping. And, you know, it was a warm night from dark with lots of stars. We just had a really great time. You could feel that the students were a little bit kind of nervous at the beginning because this was not according to the plan. Um, but as, as the beauty of the sunset, as the beauty of the natural history around us started to, to be more than evident, everybody relaxed and we had a great dinner. And it was just, you know, an experience for all the senses, you know, beautiful sunset, smells from the desert, um, wildlife coming out. Um, the sand was so soft that it was great to put the tents in the middle of the dirt road and, and just camp there. And the next morning my friend came out and pulled out the van. We pulled out the van with no problem and we continued our trip. But that night became one of the highlights of the entire trip. episode of Seize the Day. If you did, please subscribe and write us a review. This will help other people find our podcast. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Seize the Day Pod. We want to thank all the students and faculty who submitted a fail or folly story. We had a lot of fun putting it together. You can find all of our past episodes along with extra information on the materials and participants highlighted on our website at sites.nicholas.duke.edu slash seize the day. This podcast was written by Lisa Campbell and put together by me, Hafa Lobo. Our theme song is by Joe Morton and our artwork is by Stephanie Hillsgrove. Thank you for listening.